Hi, this is Nick Dawson, the editor-in-chief of TalkHouse Film, and you're listening to the TalkHouse Film Podcast. Laurie Anderson was an early contributor to the TalkHouse, and in the past year or so has taken part in a couple of great TalkHouse music podcasts with Meryl Garbus from Tunyards. Anderson is, of course, more than just a musician. She's also an incredibly gifted visual artist and filmmaker, and last fall released the wonderful documentary Heart of a Dog. Thoughtful, witty, and warm, it ponders profound questions about love, death, and language, primarily through the prism of Anderson's relationship with her rat terrier Lola Bell. It's an essay film, sure, but heartfelt and intimate rather than heady and intellectual. This past December, the Rubin Museum of Art in New York City hosted a screening of Heart of a Dog, after which the great Darren Aronofsky, the director of such movies as Pi, Requiem for a Dream, and Black Swan, spoke with Anderson on stage. And thanks to the generous folks at Abramorama, Heart of a Dog's distributor, were able to bring you their conversation. Anderson says at the start that she hates Q&As, but fortunately, this isn't a Q&A, but rather a dialogue between two smart, engaged, creative peers, just like all TalkHouse podcasts. Here the two talk about the nature of storytelling, their differing approaches to filmmaking, plus an imagined conversation between Herman Melville and his editor during the writing of Moby Dick, and traumatic stories from each about batteries. Um, I'm happy to see you made it. Yes. <laughs> um, I've done these before Q&As, and it's usually really easy for me, but this is really hard. <laughs> First of all, it's a gift to me to spend time with you, so thank you for that. Um, and, uh, and it's, you know, it's, it's, talk, it's poetry, um, and it's hard to really um, talk about it uh, without, you know, really holding on to anything and just watching the second half a second time there's so many things that drift through and stick and anchor and change and then seeing it again just being like oh I've already stolen that in the week since I've seen it to something I'm doing myself without even being aware of it so the waves of influence are, are already coming out from it um, but the thing that's really I walked in right about the story and the more you tell a story how it just sort of disappears and doesn't becomes less and less the truth. Um, and it's funny because I had this, there's this one thing that happened to me, which um, was something that happened around a lot of people, but I actually only told the story twice in my life. And I kind of had that instinct that I knew as you start to tell a story, it starts to evaporate. So if we can start there for you, if that's okay. Please. Um, <laughs> Had you, where did you learn that? Had that idea come to you? Had that realization happen, et cetera? Well, uh, the first thing I want to say is um, thanks so much for doing this, for Absolutely. being here. And also, I just hate Q&As. <laughs> this film is made of so many uh, really questions, you know, as you know. And, and um, so... You know, and none of them are really particularly answered in any way. So, and it's it's meant to be a kind of conversation with people. So, jumping in and saying what it means, you know, is 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 a little silly. But I wish you had said that around. before I did this whole preamble. Q and A's, but um, it it is as you say. This is a film about stories and what they are and how they're made and what happens when you uh, repeat them and what happens when you forget them or when you tell them too many times or. Um, or what happens when somebody imposes a story on you. Uh, so the, one of the subplots is um, 
homeland security and this well kind of way that um, uh, it's put onto you in some form of information. So, um, and one example of that is, is uh, for example, you get a order a book on Amazon and then bing. Two minutes later, they go, well, Mark, you loved that book. You're going to love this one. And um, I was thinking, like, wait a second. You know, that book that I just ordered was a gift. It was like, that wasn't for me. Don't think you know me because of what I just bought. You know, <laughs> so um, there's a lot of pressure to tell your story. And uh, whether it's, you know, your, your summation of, Facebook or whether somebody goes, what kind of kid were you? And we all have the, the story, one or two stories you haul out to say, you know, what kind of person you are. And, and then uh, you see how they get sort of frayed. So this is uh, an attempt to tell uh, stories in a few different ways as well. And, and one, which is the uh, words that are flashing very quickly is uh, to tell a story that just comes into your eyes, which is such a different way to to receive a story, and um, that was um, an attempt to talk to the part of you that um, never speaks, and uh, the one that's kind of just always there, and who's, I don't know about you, but my person who's always there is usually kind of critical, just kind of like... Yeah, that's the one who, well, the, actually, it's, it's the one that doesn't talk, but it's a kind of going, why are you just continually talking, you know? <laughs> just like, could you just stop talking? I, I'm sure you've had that feeling of, you know, you're in the middle of a conversation and this voice is going on, and you realize, that's me talking. Could I just stop? <laughs> like, for example, like right now, I'm having that experience in kind of a big way. <laughs> so, anyway. I, I'm reading to my nine-year-old a book called Brian Selnitz, The Marvels. The guy wrote Hugo Cabri. Sorry for, he's a great writer, great children's writer. And the whole book is about how, it's about uh, an adult who just lives in a story that the young boy thinks is a lie. It is, I mean, it's made up. But the point of it is, is that the only thing that is true is the story. And so, I don't know, it's, it's interesting. In, in some ways, you get away from the, telling the story becomes its own truth, if you will, at a certain point. Now the voice in my head is saying that's not really a question. So, um, yeah. what do you do with that? Yeah. Well, um, there are, uh, uh, it's funny, I think memory has a, a lot to do with how you're, um, uh, how that works. And some of these things uh, only came back in, Inter the, I only found an end to this film through a, a sort of circuitous route of somebody. One of my brothers was um, uh, uh, found a lot of cartons of childhood films, and he said, I, "Yeah, well, you're doing a film, so um, I, you know, can you just transfer some of the? I'm sure you've got <laughs> transferring the family films." So I said, yeah, "I'm kind of busy, but anyway, I, I transferred some films, and in in one of the boxes was." Some reels, some eight millimeter reels of my uh, little brothers and this, uh, my mother's ice skating in this kind of lost world of, and I'm skating and I thought, and I called my brothers and said, guys, you know, you, rem you remember that day I almost drowned you? And they said, yes, we do. <laughs> and they're identical twins, so they have like an outboard brain, you know, they remember a lot more than we do, you know. <laughs> and and I said. 
said, you know, I, I found all of this this footage of you guys in the stroller and mom and me. And they said, you're not going to use that in your film, are you? I said, I don't know, would you mind? And so they were sports about it. So uh, it ended up in there as a story that, um, that I hadn't particularly remembered very well. But then just, you see a picture and suddenly... Uh, the way it smells comes back, the way it feels comes back. So um, anyway, there are lots of ways that um, those those stories got reconstructed and then kind of erased. How old How old were the twins at the time? They were uh, two. Right, the so they don't really remember They the do event. remember. They actually remember they the event. They do remember it's not that, a, yeah. It's not a story, constru a truth that's been put in, because it's become family it, lore, I yeah, imagine. Yeah, it's family lore, but also, you know, there really is something when, you, when you're, when you're, identical twins are, it's not like having a brother or a sister. It's a very, very different thing. You know, it's like, you, it saves a lot of time, too, because you don't have to look for someone to understand you. You know, you're born with someone who really understands you. You don't have to look for this person your whole life. Do to understand me, you know? And so uh, so they have a different sort of relationship to their own past, I think, than other people do. Right. Yeah. It's sort of check the big box. Don't yeah. have to search for that soulmate. Yeah. yeah. Got it. Exactly. Um, it's funny, I f we found the Super 8 and we transferred it and we were watching. My older sister was chewing on something and everyone's going, oh, isn't that cute? And then we realized it was a, a D battery she was chewing on. It's like the 1970s, you know, it was like, instead of a pacifier. Batteries are really, they're, they're really bad. I, I just have one short battery story, which is, um, I, have, I always wanted to um, sing like a violin, and so I, I have a little um, pillow speaker, you know these little speakers that you put in your pillow so you can like learn German in your sleep? Um, it never How's worked it working for, for you? <laughs> I would wake up like feeling really paranoid, you know. <laughs> I didn't learn any German at all, but I, I, um, I recorded a bunch of things on it, mostly violin, and, and being somebody who is an oral person, I, I um, just, uh, put it, this small speaker in my mouth, and so you can control the right. volume and certain uh, harmonics of it, so you're like... So it was, uh, you know, this sound of a violin is coming out. Um, I was I got a prize uh, last year, and I had not used this little speaker for quite a while. So I thought this will be a good way to do the acceptance speech, just like <laughs> And so uh, I went to the, um, <laughs> to, uh, I was rehearsing, I was just turning it on, put it in my mouth, and the battery inside had, was leaking. Mm. And it glued itself to the roof of my mouth. Okay, you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I went to um, the drugstore, this is in Florida, and uh, with this cable coming out, and this, uh, <laughs> and I was like, and, uh, I think the person who was at the drugstore probably had seen worse things coming th in through the door <laughs> at this place, but uh, gave me a solvent to get, uh, I thought, that, you know, the, the roof of my mouth is, is dissolving, you know, <laughs> this is really, it's going to leak into my brain, it was, re it was really... That's my battery story. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's a freewheeling uh, yeah. <laughs> event here. Um, so talk, talk a little bit. I mean, uh, there's so much. Um, I, I just want to focus on the story thing for one more. Just give it one more shot, which is that the, the, just the real. I'm just trying to understand how. When do those realizations come? When that you're, real, that you're realizing that. By, that you're losing the facts of the story over and over that you tell it. Is it something 
that's handed down, or is it a self-realization when the moment? Or, and then how do you turn that into words and a piece of poetry like that? Well, I think for me, it was uh, the particular story that I was talking about was, was the, my childhood story that I would drag out. And uh, being a 12-year-old who uh, was, um, had this experience and, um, and was basically going, you know, adults are idiots, hospitals are awful, you know. It's, it, it, like every 12-year-old, I was a, a, a punk, you know. I thought adults were idiots. And you were kind of embarrassed to be around them, really. And um, uh, But that was sort of um, my story. And, and, and in the end, I realized adults kind of are idiots because they put all the kids in the same wards, you know, and all the burn victims. And it, as a 12-year-old, I wasn't really able to handle that very well. So, you know, you, you tell the story you can tell. And that was the one that I could tell, because otherwise um, it was uh, uh, horrendous to be in in that place, and and um, I w wasn't able to un to deal with all the kids who who died there, and so my version of it was, oh yeah, I was a kind of hero in the story. So when I told it again as an adult, I was really telling the story of a twelve-year-old as the the narrator that I had become of my life. So. Uh, there are lots of these uh, sort of um, jumps uh, in in terms of um, uh, who's telling what to who in the, in in the film, and it was it was um, a film that was was uh, it was not my idea to do this film. I was asked by uh, Arte TV, uh, French German TV, to make a an essay film, a personal essay film. I was like, what is that? <laughs> And I thought, maybe it's like what Chris Marker does. And Chris Marker is one of my all-time favorite filmmakers, so I thought I'd try to, to make it like that. Um, I think, you know, uh, one of the things about this was, I think they forgot that they had asked me to do this film. <laughs> because they never called, they never said, how's the film going? And so I, I, I was just, like, on my own. And so uh, it, it, didn't, it didn't even really matter if I uh, finished it, it seemed like. <laughs> So uh, it was a really unique way to work because I did it kind of as a hobby. No one cared about it. So I was like, okay, I'll, I started it and I stopped and then I kind of went back and tinkered with it. And one of the things that I, I was hard for me in doing this was that it wasn't like making a record where you could make 12 islands of sound. They don't really have to you know, reinforce each other. They can just be here and here and here. And this. And, and I had to, in this case, um, uh, find an engine and uh, to move through the story. So this was um, a, uh, a problem that I had, had um, come up against a few times. And one was when I uh, once did a very misguided um, opera on, uh, based on Moby Dick. And if, if you have this idea to... Um, uh, write an opera based on your favorite book, don't do it. <laughs> it's like, it's just, I, you know, it's so hard to, to um, when you fall in love with something, you want to be so worshipful. And, you know, in this case, um, you, you, know, you have to kind of be a little rougher with something if you're going to change it into something. Also, I live in a, an area which is pretty near where Melville lived, and I, I thought, he, you know, he's going to come and find me and kill me. <laughs> You know, my novel does not need to be a multimedia opera, thank you so much. <laughs> but anyway, one, one last thing about Melville was um, that I found out a lot about 
um, how that book was was made. And one of the things about it was that, which you may or may not know, is that um, Captain Ahab was not in the first draft of the book. And I really like imagining what it would be like to uh, editor with uh, Melville and his editor sitting around going, you know, um, Herman is like a, the book is great. It's it's so interesting with so many ship ship details and ropes and you know the sea. But you know, where is this going? You know, it's it's. it's it's basically guys go fishing, you know? Where's the engine here? Where's this thing going? You need something, you need something to push this. You need it, you know, I like a crazy captain. So if you notice, if you remember, that captain is not in the first third of the book. Why? Because he wasn't written yet. And when he does appear, he kind of comes up out of the hole and he's, he has this English accent for some reason and you know he's got a vast with a whale and he's got this purpose and he's got this this rage. He's like an American leer. He's like, ah, get the whale. It always seemed kind of stagey to me, you know, kind of like a little bit uh, a little bit Shakespearean and. Um, uh, not quite working, but it did drive this ship. It did push the ship. It pushed the whole story somewhere. And I'm sure that you know, I, for me, that was the hardest thing to you know, to to figure out is how to make something would go somewhere rather than just be a lot of stories about language and how the world is made of words and blah, blah, blah. and so where how does it how does it shape that way so. Let's talk about the structure. How how did I mean? You're you're constantly drifting along, and there's these um, these peaks and valleys. I can take I could pull apart any you know narrative Hollywood, <laughs> even an independent can. film and most European films, and give you the structure of why I remain connected. But um, you know you don't have an Ahab, um, but maybe there's a longing that is something pulling you through. Um, but how did you think about structure, and how did where how do you arrive at this length, which is what it's coming? It's eighty minutes. It's where is it? It's almost yeah. Eighty minutes, which is you know a feature length film, to hold the attention of the audience, which this does is there's something pulling us. Do, do you know what it is? Um, it it's love, and uh, and what it means and how it works and and also. Um, uh, the fallibility of, of language, the, how, how difficult it is to put those kinds of things into words. So the second story is, is um, uh, because m much of the film centers around uh, uh, mothers, and in, in certain ways that's one of the subplots. And so the second story is uh, her deathbed speech, my mother's deathbed speech, which, which was a really amazing one because she was a very proud and very formal person. And so when she gave her deathbed speech, she waited for all her eight children to show up, and then she kind of stepped up to the microphone almost and goes, thank you all for coming. And we're like, whoa, what is she talking about? <laughs> and then she gets a little disoriented as she's talking to the animals who are, uh, she was a really real animal lover. So they're gathering on the ceiling, and then, then she's back to talking to, to you, to history, to saying goodbye, and it was, but meanwhile, the, the, the language is just breaking apart, just shredding, and so um, this was the, the, one of the questions that pulls it through is, is how can you speak 
and what what is it that um, you can put into words? And so, uh, working with a film, and, I, and that's not something I, I usually do because a lot of uh, a lot of this film, in a sense, is, is almost a radio play because it, it leaves so much to uh, your imagination. Some, you know, for example, one story about a lineman who was a guy who just imagined that you know he well he lived in the trees in our in our town, and I I. I um, wanted to include this almost also as a kind of small town um, fable because uh, nowadays he would he would be institutionalized in a second but you know in our town he just lived in the trees and uh, uh, people were like yeah he's up there and lives in the trees and he pretends he's kind of works for the phone company and people more or less let that go you know <laughs> and uh, uh, so but all you see while the, you're hearing this long story is a bunch of telephone poles going by and so you, you know you have to fill in a lot of things in the in this film so was it was it text that came first or music or visuals or was it just sort of all coming in from different times and different ways and shifting oh. i have the curse of being like a multimedia artist so yes. <laughs> you know, it's, it's ridiculous um and um so it just depends you know uh i'm i'm sure uh when somebody asks you that, it depends on the project, right? No. And, no, it doesn't. Yeah. What comes well, first? We start with, you know, script is like the basic blueprint architecture. Uh -huh. yeah. So we get that, and hopefully we get it really, yeah. really boiled down and yeah. really precise, and then everything builds from that. So, yeah. Yeah. But I imagine you had a bunch of stories you wanted to include, and yeah. our ideas, and were they, is music on the same level for you as words? And do the visuals? No, you know, I mean, I... When I finished this film, I showed it to um, a place where I was working as an artist in residence, and um, everyone in this group said, do us a favor, don't put music in this movie. It's so hardcore, it's so disturbing, <laughs> with just uh, a voice. And, and I thought, and so it was like that for a while, and then uh, the producer of this film, Dan Chanby, said, why don't you put a little music in the film? You know, like you're a musician, you know, you could always take it out <laughs> if you don't like it. And um, so I thought, and so I did it very, very quickly, you know, I was uh, basically looked at the film on my laptop and sort of played the violin along with it and lots of electronics. And then I pulled in some other things that, um, uh, uh, from different songs and different stuff that I had in my bin. It's a, it's a kind of a little electronic rig that has a lot of samples, and so you can do things really quickly with foot pedals, and you can play the whole thing uh, as you watch it. So that's kind of how it was done. And uh, um, and I, but I'm, I think I, I will put out a version of this with no music because I think it's 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 um, scary. <laughs> it's already scary. <laughs> This is Nick Dawson from Talkhouse Film, and you've been listening to Darren Aronofsky and Laurie Anderson on the Talkhouse Film Podcast. This episode was edited by Elia Einhorn. For more filmmakers talking film and TV, 
visit thetalkcast.com slash film. Subscribe to Talkcast Film and Talkcast Music Podcast on iTunes, where you can find all our previous episodes. And while you're there, please rate and review if you can. Thank you so much. Thanks, Darren. And thanks, Tim. And thanks for being there. Thank you for coming.